Amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. Appreciate you leading us in worship this morning. That was awesome. Well, this morning, our speaker is Dr. Bob Gerhardt. Dr. Gerhardt served as a pastor for many years and also as the executive director of AMEC, which is the organization that we are part of. And so he just recently retired from that position. So now he is doing some itinerant speaking at various places. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have Dr. Gerhardt with us this morning. He spoke in Sunday school back in June and July. He spoke on hold fast to that which is good, holding fast to the biblical principles, the biblical truths that our forefathers believed. And uh, you can find that series on our YouTube channel. And so I encourage you to do that as well. But Dr. Gerhardt, we're excited to have you here with us this morning and uh, to share with us from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Dr. Gerhardt. Thank you for the ministry that you have given him for so many years. Thank you, Father, for the insights that he shared in Sunday school. Lord, thank you that he is holding fast to the truth that's found in the word of God. Lord, use him this morning to speak to our hearts. Lord, may your spirit make those words embedded in our hearts and minds that we will always hold fast to the truth of the word of God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, and it's a privilege to be here with you again. We were here last October for the conference of AMAC, the Alliance of Mennonite Evangelical Congregations, and uh, it was my final conference as executive director, and I had a keynote message which went on and on and on, and, um, but most of you weren't here because we were doing it virtually, and I think that's also available uh, online if you can find it. But it was good to come back to teach during June and going into July, and a bit of review this morning, sort of a recap. And I appreciate how the songs this morning reinforced what we were talking about during the Sunday School Hour and what we truly believe about our one God, holy God, who is in charge of the universe. But I'm going to shift now to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to learn some things, take a look at some things that the Apostle Paul was writing. And if you think you have troubles, he had a whole bunch more. And as he comes to 2 Corinthians 4, he, this is his second letter, maybe actually a third letter to the church at Corinth, a problem congregation that was very confident that they were a wonderful church. They had all the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, they were arguing about them, and they uh, had the truth of the Word of God, and they were excusing some conduct and trying to ignore some of the application of that Word. 
And Paul had to write to them to both encourage, guide, and discipline. And then he writes this second letter because they had cleared up some of the mess uh, and had taken care of some of the problems there. And he wants to affirm that and uh, encourage them in going on. But in the meantime, there were those who had come into Corinth and the surrounding area there of Greece and were coming with a false gospel, a gospel that said if you follow God, if you believe in Jesus, everything will go well. You will have a wonderful life. All you have to do is bide your time until we get to heaven and then it will be even more wonderful. But look at Paul. Look at the troubles that he has gotten himself into and therefore that must be evidence that Paul is out of the will of God. Because if he was doing God's will and doing it his way and teaching what God wanted him to teach, wouldn't God be blessing him with safety and comfort and provision and exaltation? Wouldn't he be on the front page of the paper not as a troublemaker but as one to be admired? But look at, look at what he has gotten himself into. Look at his track record. How can you say that that is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus certainly doesn't want us to have to suffer. Jesus wouldn't want us to be embarrassed in public by holding a position that goes contrary to the local cultures, would he? And that's what the false teachers were using to undermine Paul's teaching, his reputation, his uh, influence in the church, and they were looking for the attention for themselves. And so Paul has to answer in a number of ways these critics, these imposters, these who are misrepresenting the gospel of Christ and what it means. And so... Um, he, uh, in chapter 3, he had said he made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. And uh, he's trying to defend his calling. But let's start now in chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll take a look at these passages. Therefore, in view of what I've said, Paul is saying in the beginning of my letter, therefore, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Why would he lose heart? Well, because look at what this ministry has gotten you into. Or look at what it has not kept you out of. Rather, verse 2, Rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. These others are coming in deceptively. They're coming in shamefully. They are distorting the Word of God. We're not doing that. And then in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And what this is referring to is back in chapter 3, 
Of course, when Paul's writing a letter, he's not writing in chapters and verses, so he's just writing a letter. But in our, the way we publish it, the way we can follow it, it's in chapter 3. Uh, he's saying that, you remember how Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the law? And he spent 40 days up there in the presence of the Lord. And when he came down, his face would glow because he had been in, in the presence of the majestic holy God, a God who could not be seen from down below because the mountain was enveloped in this cloud, but Moses in that cloud was, was in the presence of God. Now, Moses isn't seeing God's face at this point. Later on, he asks God, can I see your face? God says, look, I'll walk past you. You can look at my back. That's as close as you get. Otherwise, you wouldn't survive my glory. So God's glory is, is this majestic brilliance which has the appearance of light. And when Moses was even in the presence of God through the cloud, with the cloud in between, that glory was absorbed in Moses' face, in his skin. So when he came down, he was glowing. And not just with a big smile, but he literally was glowing with the glory of God. And so the people said, Moses, you're, you're kind of hard to look at. Now, some of us, you know, are hard to look at otherwise. But Moses was a good-looking, you know, 80-year-old guy. And uh, we don't know exactly what he looked like. Uh, maybe like Charlton Heston. I'm not sure. But, but he, he glowed. And the people said, you better pull your veil down across your face, uh, you know. It's kind of the original mask, I guess. And, uh, you know, hide your face. And Moses did. Now, remember, Moses went up and down that mountain several times. He went up to get instructions for building the tabernacle. He went up to intercede for the people. And uh, he went up to get the second set of laws because he smashed the first ones. He got so upset at the wickedness of the people worshiping this golden calf that Aaron said, well, it just turned out. We put the gold in. It came out as a calf. And why wouldn't you, you know, we should bow down to something that happens like that. And so Moses had gone up and down the mountain several times. But Moses realized, you know, when I come down, I have authority. They know I've been in the presence of God. My face is glowing. But the longer I'm down here with the people, that glow begins to fade. And so Moses covered his face at first because the people were too dazzled by that brilliance, but he covered his face subsequently to keep the people from seeing that the glory is fading away. And maybe Moses thought, oh, they're not going to listen to me. If, if I keep giving them these instructions from God, how will they know I've been with God if my face looks ordinary and I don't have that, that glow? So he covered his face with a veil so that the glory that was fading would not be a problem for the people that were to listen to his instructions. So in verse 3, he, now in chapter 4, Paul is saying, even if our gospel is veiled, if we put a veil over it so because it's so powerful and dazzling and it will 
confront people with their sins. Uh, it's veiled to those who are perishing. We're not hiding the gospel. It's just it's bothering them. And don't be surprised if the gospel bothers a person who is under conviction of sin, a person who's rebelling against God. It, it will be an embarrassment for him to realize that maybe there is really a God, like we just sang. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Just get that. Not only are we talking about the gospel, the good news about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins being the lamb that takes away the sins, buried in, uh, in the third day, rose again from the dead. That, that essence, those facts of the gospel, the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying what the world doesn't see is the light, that brilliant light of the gospel of the glory, the glory of Christ. This is not just a man from Nazareth the man of Galilee walking the streets of Jerusalem, this is God the Son. And if you understand who He is and you really see what He's up to, you will see glory. And from the time of the transfiguration, a few of the disciples got to see the glory in actuality. Those who saw Jesus after the resurrection saw another evidence of His glory and we don't know exactly what his appearance was like. It, it, when, when he walked with the men on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him, so it wasn't that he was glowing, you know, like he had been near kryptonite or something and everything made him shiny. But we don't know how he was hiding his glory at that point. He revealed it to them, and all of a sudden they realized this one who had been talking to us is our Savior, the one that we knew died three, years, three days ago, and now he's alive with us. But this glory of Christ is part of the gospel. And Paul is saying, when, when we bring you the good news, we don't want you just to learn about Jesus. And we don't want you just to understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. We want you to understand that he has all the same glory as God the Father. As all the glory wrapped up in the Trinity is in Jesus Christ. He is not just a good example, an exemplar for us to follow. He is almighty God taken on human flesh, come to die to ra be raised himself, being raised by the Father and the Spirit. But he said, I lay down my life and I take it up. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in the resurrection. And that glory, the world can't see that. And Paul's saying, do you Christians see that? Do you realize this one who is in the image of God? And then verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves. We're not seeking the glory. But Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you become a believer, that person, that, that person that you're trusting in, Jesus Christ, who is the one bearing all the glory of the Father and the one who is God the Son, the one who has come and humbled himself for a while and his glory was hidden, he's now back on the throne. He's the Jesus that when John sees him in Revelation chapter 1, John who had been with him for all those years of ministry, and John who, who now sees him and in his brilliance, in, in his glory seated on the throne, John falls down as though he died. I mean, he, he just faints away. And Jesus asks him, stand up, I have some things to tell you. This is the glory of the Savior that we're trusting in. And while we don't have the opportunity to see it with our physical eyes or to hear his glorious voice with our physical ears at this point, we see him in the word. We hear him through this book which his Holy Spirit has inspired so we would have an accurate authoritative record. But this is the gospel and he's made his light to shine in our hearts. Okay. If that light is there, and Paul says, look, it, uh, we're not calling attention to who we are. We're calling attention to who Christ is. He says in, chat, in verse 7, but we have this treasure, this treasure of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God. We have it in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. When you light a candle, when the electricity goes out and you forgot to where you put your flashlight and you find a couple candles and you light them, how many of you have ever looked for a clay pot so you could stick the candle in that so it would be inside the pot? That's not what you do with a, with a candle, with a light. It's not what they did with lamps. It's not what they did with torches. You don't put them in a jar of clay, except once. Remember who did? Gideon. Remember what Gideon was up against? He was up against these 120,000 Midianites that are out there, and they weren't Mennonites, by the way. They were Midianites. They were raiding the, the, the wheat and, and the corn. Uh, if they were Mennonites, they'd been raising the wheat and not raiding. But, and they'd pay for it. The Midianites didn't. So these Midianites are the enemy, and the people are oppressed, and they're experiencing famine, and they, they're trying to protect their little pr productivity. And God says, Let's, Gideon, I want you to lead your people, and we're going to take on these Midianites. And so Gideon gives out the word, 32,000 show up. God says, too many. And he starts narrowing it down. All those who were scared go home. And a bunch went home. And then there's still too many. Let's go down to the brook. Let's see how they drink. And those that lifted the water to their mouth and kept alert and lapped out of their hand like a dog would lap out of a bowl. Okay, you 300, come over here. The rest of you, 
that kind of didn't care who was watching you went down to the stream, uh, you can go home. 300, and there's 120,000 out there. And how are we going to take them on? And God gives instructions. Okay, everybody get a torch, 300 torches. Everybody take a sword, and uh, we're going to have trumpets. And we're going to uh, take your torch and put it in a clay jar. Figure out how to stick that torch in that clay jar so that torch burning is not visible. And then we go sneak out. We surround this whole mob of Midianites. And when I give the signal, you smash that jar and let that light shine. And we will scare the daylights. Well, Gideon didn't know how this was going to work, but God knew what would happen. And so when they give the signal and they smash the jar and the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, they shout, and these 120,000 people that were trying to, guys that were trying to sleep, uh, all of a sudden they look around and they see this ring of fire around them, and they're convinced it must be a huge army that somehow the, the Israelites have rounded up, and maybe they brought the Egyptians, or I don't know who they rounded up, but we're outnumbered. Look at all those lights. Listen to all of that noise of the smashing of those clay jars, even though there were only 300, but in the middle of the night, it sounded frightening. They started jumping up, grabbing their swords or spears, and in the darkness, uh, start killing each other. And Gideon had the victory because the clay jar was broken so the light could shine. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here. He says, we have this treasure of the gospel we have the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. But as long as it's in the jar, it can't be seen. How can it be seen in the, in the clay jar? By breaking the jar. And then he goes on to say, let me tell you how my jar has been cracked and broken and smashed and how my holding on to the light has required me, who was the, J, the clay jar, to suffer. That my suffering is not because I'm not a servant of God. My suffering is because I've been called to be a servant of God, to hold up the torch of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But it required my being broken so the light could shine. You get that? So let's go on. Verse 8. Let me tell you how that's happened. We are hard-pressed. We uh, are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus. But you notice I'm only reading half the verse. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Yes, our bodies are suffering for the cause of Christ. And in other places, he talks about how often he was whipped and shipwrecked, and, and he does some of that here, and he does it later in, the, in, the, in the, this letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 
But we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed, that the light might be made visible, that the glory will be uncovered. So then death is at work in us as faithful servants of Christ. But for you at Corinth, who are the recipients of this gospel, it's brought you life. Life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. He's quoting from the Psalms. And so in the same way that David said, because I believed, I had to speak up. He says that we have faith, I believe, and I also in that same spirit of faith must speak. And therefore we speak because we know in verse 14 that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you who are fellow believers in his presence. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I hope you got some of the message from some of the missionaries that have been here that because the gospel is being taken to difficult places in the world, people are coming to faith in Christ and therefore they are thanking God and praising Him where they are just as we do where we are. This morning, well, it's afternoon, there are believers in Afghanistan who are in hiding. They didn't get out yet. There's evidence that five to 8,000 Afghans became believers in Christ during these last 20 years of occupation in areas where there had been no witness of the gospel, no presence of a church, no gathering of believers, and there are believers. Some have gotten out. Some have been rescued by uh, the Nazarene operation and others, but many are still there. And they are thanking God and praising God because they've received the good news about who Jesus is and he's not just another prophet. He is God glorified as the Son. The glory in his face is the same glory as the Father. And it's not Jesus versus Allah. It is Jesus revealing the true Father, the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who also is co-creator and who is Savior, Redeemer. This is the one who's being praised and thanked because the gospel got to them. And it's happening all around the world. That glory, thanksgiving is overflowing so in verse 16, he says, therefore, if this is happening, we do not lose heart. That's what he said in verse 1. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are, are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Some of us would like to perhaps not waste away, but we could do little away from the waste. And uh, I don't know how many of you this morning or this weekend got on the scales 
uh, for some of us with, you know, we could always blame Thanksgiving, Christmas, and all that, the fattening foods we had to eat to be traditional. And then, of course, we had Valentine's Day and all the candy that comes with that. Of course, it started in Halloween, eating all the kids' trick-or-treat candy that they shouldn't eat. And then, you know, but we thought by summer, you know, we'll be exercising and we'll, you know, trim down. And um, then, you what, have corn on the cob and potato salad and, and all the family reunions and you dare not bypass Aunt Sadie's pie and, you know, Aunt Martha's cake and, and pretty soon... When you step on the scale, it's a problem, right? Uh, not for all of you. I mean, some of you are just fit and slender and wonderful. Uh, but some of us struggle with that. And when we step on the scale, we, we're afraid to look at those numbers. Now, that's the scale that some of you struggle with or Maybe you delight and you jump on and say, ha five pounds less than last week, and it's going the right direction. Good for you. In Paul's day, they had scales, but not with springs and, and batteries and stuff that you know, gave you a number. They had this kind of scale, a balanced scale. And this is the kind of scale that makes comparisons. Um, Comparisons of what is on one side is compared to what's on another side. And these scales can be used in a number of ways. Unfortunately, this is the scale that represents justice. You know, Lady Justice is holding scales. Now, sometimes she's blindfolded because she's not supposed to be looking at you know, who's being weighed and who's being judged. She's supposed to be fair and not play favorites, so she's blindfolded. But the scale of justice is going to tell what is the outcome of guilt or innocence. And how do you think those scales work? Most of us have the wrong idea. We think that when you are brought into court and they decide what you've done wrong, that you hope the judge will remember what you did right, and that you weigh your bad deeds, your speeding tickets, against all the times you didn't speed. You, you weigh the time you went through the red light against all the hundreds of times you stopped for the red light. Is that what happens in court? No way. It doesn't matter how many times you obeyed the law. If you broke the law, you are being measured not against your good deeds, but against the law. And the law says, this is the limit, and you went over the limit, and you are found guilty. The law says, this is what you owe on the contract, and you have not paid that, you violated it, you cheated, you thought you'd get away with it, and it doesn't matter how many times you were honest before, it's weighed against the law. And that's what Lady Justice is holding up, the law versus your conduct, your actions. Now, in many parts of the world, including Afghanistan, the Middle East, 
Egypt and our Muslim friends and neighbors. Their concept of when we get to heaven, all of your good deeds will be put on one side of the scale and all of the bad things you've done will be put on the other side of the scale and you just hope that your good deeds outweigh the bad. And if they do, you're welcome into paradise and you get to be with Allah. If not, you are judged and you are separated eternally into damnation because you didn't have enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. And we say that is heresy. That is contrary to Christian faith and belief. And yet, a majority of Christians in many communities still think that way when we get to heaven. We get to the pearly gates and Peter will say, well, let's see how you did. Wow, look what you did. You went to church and you, uh, you didn't cuss as much as your neighbor and, and you uh, paid your taxes without too much complaint and uh, you, you were just a good, good person and, well, you did some bad things, but, you know, you're good. That's not how it's going to work. The judgment before God is not the amount of good and the amount of bad. The judgment before God is, are you guilty of breaking God's law? You will be measured against God's law, a holy law, and we are all sunk. There's no way that our good deeds can overcome. Our good deeds are admirable, and please do them. Don't keep doing bad deeds because you've already you know, lost the game, and so you might as well keep being wicked. No, for the sake of your own life and your neighbor and your community, be good. Do good things. It, it, it's a lot better for right now. But don't think that it cancels out your guilt. There's only one way to cancel the guilt. And that's to let Jesus Christ take the guilt. Take the sins. And in its place, put His righteousness. Because His righteousness is being weighed against God's law. And he's kept it perfectly. His righteousness is perfect. His holiness is pure. His blood is effective to overcome all that we have done that deserves judgment. So the scale is not good deeds versus bad deeds. The scale is Christ's righteousness com in compared to the holiness of God and the law of God, and is that applied to our lives or not? Are we receiving Him as our Savior, or are we saying, no, Jesus, I don't need you. I can handle this myself. If so, we're sunk. But let's quickly close by looking at the rest of this uh, chapter. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What Paul is saying here is we're not weighing your guilt or innocence. Let me show you that Paul is saying in this scale, there's a different way to measure what you're experiencing. 
And what you're experiencing is troubles whoops, and persecution and misunderstanding and people turning uh, against you and, and all of these things that, um, that have come into your life and you're saying, God, how can that be? Why am I getting sick? What did I do wrong that, that I deserve that? Uh, why did I lose my job? Why didn't I get promoted? And all these troubles are weighing down on the scale of, of our peace and comfort and understanding. They're, it's not fair. Paul could have said, God, you are not fair. Okay, so I wasn't crushed, but why did I have to be hard-pressed? I, I try not to despair, but why did I have to be perplexed? I know you didn't abandon me, but why am I going through persecution? I know I didn't really wasn't destroyed by that last incident, but why was I struck down? And all of these problems are real. They're not imagined. These troubles are heavy. And they outweigh the joy and the pleasure and the rest and the peace that we were hoping for when we trusted Christ. Paul says, that side is just for a moment. It's just for now. It, it's not going to last. It's, you might think they go on and on and on, but when you look at the whole picture from God's side, it's only a moment. You see, there's eternal life. There's forgiveness of sins. There's joy. There's peace. There's going to be seeing God face to face. There's going to be glory. There's going to be no more night, no more pain, no more funerals, no more, no more sadness. You're going to have blessing after blessing and those blessings are not for a moment. They're for eternity. They will last. And they are far more valuable than anything that you're losing now. That, look what he says, the light and momentary troubles, they're real troubles, they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And literally, and it comes through in, in the uh, King James a little bit more, where it says, far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. In fact, literally what Paul is saying, this is an exceedingly exceeding, beyond exceeding glory. In fact, it's far more than that, and it lasts forever. These troubles, yes, they're real, but only for maybe a month or months, or years, maybe a lifetime. But how short is that compared to when you're in the presence of the Lord and you see Jesus face to face in all of his majesty? And just read Revelation 1. That's what he looks like right now. He's not walking around in a dusty robe. He is dazzling in linen with a gold band around his chest and he's crowned, and he's, he's glorious, and the angels are cheering him on, and all the saints that have already died are praising him and thanking him, and you'll have that 
when he calls you home. And so, as you weigh your problems right now, be sure you're not comparing them with somebody else's problems. Compare them with the glory that is to be revealed. The exceeding, eternal, far outweighing glory in the person of Jesus Christ. A hymn writer summed it up this way. When all my labors and trials are over, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. When by the gift of his infinite grace I am accorded in heaven a place just to be there and to look on his face, will through the ages be glory for me. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that among us today there are some who are heavily burdened with problems that seem perplexing, that seem there's no way out, that seem we can't face another day. But Lord, you can, you can help us. You will not abandon us in our time of need. You can lift our spirits. You can give us that energy and that, that motivation that we might need. You can give us that freedom from guilt when, as we confess our sins to you and let you cleanse us. And Lord, you can, you can heal a conscience. You can heal a broken heart. And Lord, I pray that you would be doing that as needed in each life as they trust in you. But Lord, also open their eyes to see that right now we only see temporarily. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but we need to fix our eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this worth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I pray this for this congregation, all represented here, through our fellowship of churches, through our land, through our world, in today's troubling times. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerhardt. Appreciate your message. I'm going to ask him to go back to the lobby where uh, you have a chance to greet him. If you have a prayer concern on your heart this morning, um, I'm going to be up front here. Um, please come up here, and I'd love to talk with you and pray, pray for you.